Museum's summer cover to cover series. I'm Jessica Hanson-York, I'm Deputy Director and Chief Advancement Officer here at the museum, and we're so happy that you all chose to spend your Friday evening with us. Thank you for being here. This is our fifth year hosting a summer series, and this summer we have celebrated the wonder, the intrigue, the challenges of all things literary, and we've covered live calligraphy on the gallery walls, which I think you all had a chance to see out there in the rotunda. Uh, discussions with independent bookshop owners and special collection librarians, and they've, <laughs> yes, to the librarians. They've all been inspired by voluminous art treasures from San Diego's University Libraries. That's our wonderful ups uh, upstairs exhibition. I hope you've all had a chance to see it. If you haven't, try to sneak up there after the end of the program. Uh, before we go any further, I do want to thank California Humanities and their support has made these programs possible this summer. This is our fifth Friday night interview program supported by Very grateful. So tonight we're bringing the series to a close and they focus on comics, specifically comics influence and role in popular culture. We welcome Adam Smith. Adam is the director of the Comic-Con Center for Popular Culture, which will open very soon here in Balboa Park. I think a lot of people in this room are looking forward to that happening. We are too. Uh, we also have with us Patrick Yurick of MakingComics.com, Robert Scott, the owner and operator of Kamikaze, thank you for being here, and Laura Latagunges, who's the Vice President of Digital Services at IDW. <laughs> I was going to tell you to welcome our panelists, but you just did, so thank you very much. And I'm going to turn things over to Adam. Thank you, Jess. Uh, I read that as they were welcoming Laura not the rest of us. <laughs> okay, it, it is my job to, um, to sort of moderate the discussion this evening. Um, what we're going to do is about 45 minutes of panel discussion here, and then we'll have time for questions at the end. So uh, if there's things you want to know that we haven't covered, then we'll, we'll have uh, we'll have a Q&A. So we have, I have a list of questions. The first one is, could you begin by introducing yourself and the organization you're from and the role and your role there? And also tell us a little bit about how you ended up in the role that you're in. So let's go let's go down in this direction. You first, Laura. Alright, so I'm Laura Lake Benjus, I'm the Vice President of Digital Services over at IDW Publishing. We're one of the largest comic book publishers in North America. Um, also uh, Side hobby, um, the director of the San Diego Comic Art Gallery. Um, how I ended up here was just being a giant nerd. Um, I was president of the online Jim Lee fan club. Jim Lee's currently the publisher of DC Comics, but 25 years ago, he's just, yeah, a really cool artist. And so I managed that, and one day I got an email from him saying, Hey, I'm looking for an intern. Do you want to? come and intern with me, and it was like the mothership calling me home. Yes. <laughs> and um, he assumed because I was the uh, president of an online fan club, I knew how to make websites. I did not know how to make websites. I knew how to turn on my computer, and that was about it. And um, he said, you can do our website. I said, sure, yeah, totally. And I went and bought myself a book, How to Build Websites, and. That's it from there. That's how I ended up uh, being here, just kind 
take my way through the whole thing. They can just say power cycle, and then people get glazed over and they let me have time to figure it out. My name is Patrick Yurick. Um, I run the website thinkingcomics.com. I'm also a comic book artist. Uh, I just finished a series for MIT that teaches graduate students how to communicate their research, their scientific research, a little bit better. Um, and uh, not that they're not doing a good job already. I just wanted to help. Um, how did I get here? Uh, I think I. I'm an addict to like really great projects, and I've just loved comic books for as long as I can remember. I remember reading Newsweek political cartoons when I was five years old, not understanding what they were about, but knowing that I wanted to do that when I got when I got older. Um, then I discovered comic books, uh, and I was introduced to that in my teens. I'm from New Hampshire, so I'm from the woods out there, so comic books were kind of hard to come by when I was growing up. Um, so when I did get them, they were very precious. This is before internet, I'm very old. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so um, I'm out here because I, I started teaching art at High Tech High in Chula Vista. I helped open that school. And um, I've been just teaching kids how to make comic books for a decade now. So Could, um, could you just explain a little bit about your website, makingcomics.com, or what, what that's all about? Sure. Uh, so makingcomics.com is a free resource um, that I, I founded with some of my friends um, to teach people how to make comic books for free from anywhere in the world. Um, we were really interested in making sure that if you were a kid that was interested in comics and you Googled, how do I make comics, that the first result wasn't something that was trying to sell you something. Um, and, and I think we've successfully done that. We, we just uh, finished two and a half years um, with a course uh, on Coursera called How to Make a Comic Book, um, which has had about I think we just checked that 64,000 um, people have gone through the course. We've had a fraction of that complete, but that's still a lot of people to, to kind of come through and check it out and register and do all of that. So. My name is Robert Scott. I've spent the last uh, 26 years running Kamikaze Comics Books and more. Primarily in the Claremont uh, area, three years ago we opened a second location, Liberty Station, down in Point Loma, uh, right across from the uh, San Diego Comic Garden Gallery. Uh, and IBW, which has been real fun to be a part of. Um, how I got here, um, it's kind of weird. I was never a comic book guy as a kid. Um, my parents were both heavy readers and always had novels around the house, and I was always picking those up and reading those. I, read Time in Life magazine to my mom when she cooked dinner. Uh, and it really wasn't until junior high school that I had uh, any real introduction to comics. And uh, at that time, it was strictly a monetary type thing. I saw a friend of mine trying to sell another friend a, a 25 cent comic for $10. And I said, wow, why? And uh, I thought if I could figure out why that comic book was worth so much more, uh, maybe I could corner the market get rich. The more effort I put into trying to decipher what it was about these comics that was making people want to spend so much more than the cover price, uh, I started to fall in love with the art form. And from there, uh, became a reader, became a lover of comics. And uh, uh, ever since then, one, one way or another, I've either 
retail comic production and produced my own uh, comic in the early 2000s. Uh, and I spent the last 18 years helping other people also bring their work uh, to the marketplace as well. Thanks, Robert. Uh, they wanted me to answer the questions too. So um, the activity here is English. Uh, I moved to America. 18 years ago, um, and if I'm a geek or a nerd about anything, I think it's museums. Um, I got my first job in a museum when I was 16 years old. I'm 46 years old now, and that's um, all I've ever done. Um, I've worked in a farming museum, a coal mining museum, a golf museum, aviation museums, um, curated the first major exhibit on the history of video games. And about 15 months ago, my phone rang from a with Comic-Con, and two things got my attention. One was Comic-Con, um, obviously an extraordinary organization, and a movement, in my opinion, that there's, there's something interesting going on here in society, just in the, the world in which we live in, that I think is manifesting itself through events like Comic-Con. So I was sort of interested in that. Um, but also, um, you might be interested to know, Pablo Park um, got my attention too. I have learned, um, in some ways, the hard way that the location of a museum is extremely important to its chances of success. And I, I knew about Bubble Park and knew what an amazing place this is as one of the world's great cultural hubs. And so the combination of uh, Comic-Con and Bubble Park sort of led me on the journey that, that caused me to move here uh, last October to, to take the job of, of, of trying to bring the, the Comic-Con Museum to life. Um, if you're not aware of the project, and I know many of you are, um, we have um, taken possession of what used to be the Hall of Champions down there in the Palisades, and over the next few years, we'll do a full re refurbishment of that, that space, and want to create something that captures the magic of Comic-Con all year round uh, here in Balboa Park. And uh, hopefully they'll bring um, a, a new but complementary kind of audience energy to, um, uh, to this already awesome place. So that's what I do. Right, next question. Um, you guys already answered the next question because you talked about how you got into comics, so I'm going to just skip that. Um, in, in what ways do you see comic books influencing popular culture on a day-to-day -day basis? T-shirts? Um, yeah, well, you know, I guess my simple, quick little story is that in the early 90s, you know, I was already really steeped in this huge content nerd, so I have my oversized X-Men t-shirt because they didn't make, you know, young preteen girl t-shirts at the time for comics, and um, that did not do me any favors socially. <laughs> um, but nowadays, you know, it's really cool. I see comic book t-shirts in the young women's department over at like, Target or at Macy's and stuff. So that's where you can see that comics have definitely grown over the last 20 years where, yeah, like I said, I was stuck with my Triple X Men t-shirt in 92 and now I can get, you know, you can see, I can buy my niece, you know, tons of comic book t-shirts and stuff, so. Um, I, I use a, an analogy, I think, that comics today are, are kind of like the folk music of the 60s. Um, I think that more than comics informing uh, 
politics, I think it's the other way around, where a lot of politics are now informing comics. Um, it's, whether it's the old uh, you know, Superman or Captain America punching Hitler, uh, you know, propaganda type stuff, or whether it's new books like Cal Exit, uh, which is a book about California seceding from the Union after uh, electing a fascist president. Um, and and the, uh, the wackiness that would ensue with trying to recover the fourth largest economy uh, in the world. Um, I think it, it gives basically everybody a chance to say what they want to say, uh, and do it in a way that's unedited. Um, and there's really uh, such a low barrier to entry to be able to create a comic book, just like there was for, for guys to be able to hold a guitar. And, and pen some lyrics and, and sing a song. And uh, I really think that uh, um, even today, comics are probably still a little underappreciated for what they can deliver. Um, but I think that there's um, there's definitely a lot more respect and a lot more people paying attention to what's coming out between the covers of today's comics. I've got two stories. Um, the first one was on Monday, I was actually up in Conway, New Hampshire. Uh, I was shopping with my wife and uh, my mother uh, for vacation day. Um, and I was in the, the TJ Maxx outlet. And at the very back, there was a kids section. And they had a book, like just one lane of books. And you know, you're used to seeing like Baron's Day Fairs or whatever there. and there were kids' comics in a TJ Maxx outlet <laughs> in northern New Hampshire, and I was like, wow, things have changed a lot. Um, that was not something that existed back then. The other thing that, that came up, in, uh, so I run a, you know, I said I run an online uh, uh, course and a website for teaching comics. I just, two weeks ago, I Googled on, or I went on Amazon and I searched for just to see how many books there were to teach people how to make comic books. And I was shocked. There was thousands, thousands. And they were like under 99 cents and on Kindle. And like, there are so many ways to find out how to learn how to make comic books. For like five years of my childhood, all I had was Stan Lee's How to Draw Comics the Marvel Way, which Stan Lee wasn't actually a visual artist, so th this was a very strange book that came with markers. <laughs> um, but it was what I knew, and uh, I just it was so impressed, and I was thinking about how um, there's a lot of work that needs to be done moving forward to think about how do we introduce ethically and socially conscious ways of, of teaching how to make comic books to kids, um, as opposed, because there's just so much to choose from. We have a totally different problem now, which is we have too many things to choose from. Um, and how do we choose the right thing to, to learn? So that, that's a new problem. I, uh, I'll answer this by saying, I think if you go to any listing of the top grossing movies of all time, I read recently that 18 out of the top 30 were basically originated if you just look at what's going on at the box office over the last decade, um, the, the world of comics has clearly spawned a giant industry that, that sort of creates these monster grossing movies 
but also all the spin-offs from the toys, the clothing. I bought someone an umbrella today at Marvel. Actually, don't tell Gary that I bought him an umbrella. He's going to London on vacation. Um, so, my, I, I've got four, three nephews and a niece over, over there in England, and they are just totally obsessed with the Avengers and, and, and all, of these, all these characters. I don't believe they have any concept that they began with comic books, though. To them, this is just, this is just their reality as, 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 young, as young children. And I, I think one of the things that, that almost like the world of Comic-Con is trying to do is to maintain that connection, that this idea that comics are a really fast way to prototype storytelling. It's a very fast way to go from imagination to something that's consumable as a, as a story. And, and I think, so on a, limit, on a limited budget, you can do it quickly. And I think in some ways, the studios have realized that, that you know, it, it, you, you can t t see if there's an audience for something, and then they can go and spend the, the monster dollars on it and, and make a lot of money. Um, so it, I think we're, we're talking about doing an exhibit down at the Comic Con Museum about um, a guy that, those of you that love comics, you know him as the king of comics, uh, Jack Kirby. Those of you that don't know comics may never have heard of him. I, I, think, he's, I think he's probably one of the most influential artists, um, certainly over the last 50 years, that the average person simply never heard of. Um, he created the characters and the stories that now are world famous. Everybody knows um, who, who these characters are, but no one's heard of him. No one understands his art and his mind. And I think part of our job at the museum is to sort of just keep that connection um, and, and help to build that understanding of where, where all this stuff all right, here's a, I used to work in a bar in England. We had a rule that you, you pol talking politics was not allowed. We're now going to violate that rule. Um, what is the role of politics in comics? Uh, do you think that comics have a responsibility uh, to their readership and time? Um, well, when, when I was growing up, I didn't really have a Just like any sort of art, you know, artistic art form, uh, 
be able to speak to, you know, cast a light on what we're gonna, what's happening in society and be able to help drive uh, conversations. Can you repeat the second the question? Do you think the comics have a responsibility to their readership and turning the original? <coughs> uh, yeah. yeah. Such an interesting question. Because um, I, I want to, I can echo a lot of what Laura is talking about. I was just reading about how Stan Lee came up with the character Black Panther uh, like two years before the Black Panther Party actually formed, and he tried to do something where he changed the name of Black Panther to another character, and everybody's like, "No, it's Black Panther," and like that's how we have you know one of the highest grossing films of all time called Black Panther that has nothing to do with the Black Panther movement, um, well, directly. Um, and it's interesting to look at the IP that way, the intellectual property, and say there's all these connections to politics and the readership. Um, and, and largely in the 50s and 60s, you know, comics were mostly written in the mindset that they were for children. Um, in, in some cases, Stanley got really popular uh, making Marvel comics, and college students were looking at them. Um, and I think he was hiding those things. And we're at a different place now where we aren't hiding that stuff. That stuff's all coming to the forefront. I mean. The stuff that's really interesting to me that's happening right now is that um, because of all of the, the Me Too movement and, and a lot of the stuff that's been happening within the entertainment industry, a lot of eyes are on how are comics made all of a sudden and who's making them. And that's been something that you know we've been talking about within the industry, I, I want to say, for a very, very long time. But all of a sudden it's becoming public and acceptable for that conversation of like, it's cool that the Avengers are the Avengers, but who make, who is drawing the Avengers, who's writing the Avengers, and, and so it's interesting that there's a lot of different levels in which politics interact with the creation process. Yeah. Um, I'd say the responsibility is, is to the creator. Uh, you know, comics are, uh, for the most part, very personal uh, behavior, personal uh, accomplishment, and. You know, not everything that needs to be said in the comedy is, is going to be uh, acceptable uh, to a certain number of people. That's the way it is with any story. Some people are going to love it, some people are going to take offense to it. Um, and I think as long as the creators are true to themselves, um, that's that's where uh, where the obligation lies. I don't think that, that it needs to be tied to a current timeline uh, or, or having to or, or dismiss any of the current uh, things that are going on uh, in the everyday world. Um, I'll answer it this way. I went to visit a museum in Baltimore <coughs> recently, Jeffy's Entertainment Museum. I actually went out there because it's just about to close down and uh, the collection is being transferred to the Library of Congress. It's a huge acquisition of comic books and related to popular culture by our nation's Steve White. Um, they invited me out so I could see it before they dismantled the museum to go to the Library of Congress. And the museum is basically laid out like a giant timeline. Um, so you just start and there's just display case after display case um, going through the history of comics and popular culture, um, especially with a very heavy bias towards America. And it was really striking to me as I walked through this exhibit that popular culture represents
Cold War, you can feel the civil rights movement just through is even the colors that people use. Um, actually, here in San Diego, they did a really fascinating thing where they, they mapped every cover of, um, of uh, Time Life magazine ever and, and mapped it onto this giant graphic. And you can, you, can, you, you can see where the war is. You can see just through colors um, um, that, you know, the, the flow of politics and society. And that put in my head, as I work on this project, the idea that I think by and large, popular culture actually follows what's going on in the world. It, it reflects its times. Because it is popular, the people almost vote by what they buy and what they like. They make that, they make that connection through their, through their consumer behavior. But every now and then, things crop up where popular culture, I think, sometimes can lead, uh, not just follow what's happening, but show is a different way of thinking the world that we live in right now. And I think particularly in, in, in difficult times, um, the, was it you, Robert, that mentioned Captain America punching Adolf Hitler on the jaw? Um, that was a very controversial thing at its time. That comic came out before America joined World War II, and where there was half of the people in the country were sort of saying, we should stay out of this fight. And here you have a massively distributed comic sucking into Hitler on the jaw. And you know that's an early example of how comics can, can sometimes help to sort of clarify a debate or, or lead it. So I think I think there is I think there is a role to play in um, you know there's some there's some really interesting stuff being published right now because I think we live in historic times right now. There are there are, there are things happening in society and politics that you know are worthy of comment. Well I mean comics I mean Especially like undergrad, I mean, you don't need to go through and have big distribution via you know, to create a comic. And I think because there is such a low barrier to be able to tell your story in comics, it definitely gives uh, it's an outlet for uh, people in uh, minorities and groups that don't have necessarily the resources to be able to tell a big story. Um, recently, I've been reading about a lot about how um, early comic book artists and stuff work. You know, a lot of them were. Jewish and immigrant minorities living in New York. These aren't people who would have access to be able to be on the radio or on television, but they create some best stories. And it definitely spoke to, um, it gave a better, easier access to be able to tell their stories than you know, uh, other media. So yeah, to what you're saying. because comics are fairly easy to create uh, and we have now the internet um, which allows people to actually put their work out where it can be seen by millions of people immediately uh, without the need to actually publish and uh, find a place to have them sold. Uh, it's uh, created a whole new fan base uh, for the work and I think uh, the more work that's created, the more people embrace it, the more people that embrace it brings about more creators who are saying, hey, I, can, I have a story to tell, I can do that too. Uh, and I think
the more uh, that it becomes acceptable uh, to read comics in public and to be able to share your thoughts about them and the more the comics uh, reflect uh, you know what's going on in the world and tell stories that people haven't seen before uh, you know I think it's a happy synergy um, one is going to influence the other uh, but it will continue to go with the circle of life The only thing I'm thinking about is such a difficult question to answer. One of, one of the things around the economics of comics is that like uh, American comics have kind of gone up in price, and, and, and the art quality is a lot better, but the consumership of them has become very inaccessible to young people. Well, I think that's changing, like I said, TJ Maxx and everything. But um, I do think uh, that the consumership of, of American comics is, is very small in comparison when you look at other countries like Korea or Japan or China, where I heard a statistic a couple years ago that one in four people read comics on a daily basis in, in Korea right now. Uh, in fact, there's government-employed uh, positions for comic book artists that are employed by the government to like make comic books there. So it's like so normal to read and make comics that there's like jobs like, you know, working at uh, the Department of Motor Vehicles or something, um, which I just find unfathomable. But so like when we look at like, what is the diversity? I would say, well, where's the money coming from? Where's the money pushing these things? And, and who's reading them? Um, uh, you know, I, I heard something hard that, I heard DC say something or, or accidentally say something a couple of years ago that was around, you know, we create comics mostly for middle-aged white men. And I was really stunned by that. And I'm not trying to diss DC, they probably changed that line completely at this point, but um, I think it did say something about what superhero comics, the, the, the audience of them have worked down so much, even though the public consumership of these massive movies have gone up. Um, you know, I think we're starting to see diversity in the movies, but we still, Marvel still hasn't had a female-led uh, uh, superhero movie. The first one that's coming out is this year. Uh, with, with Captain Marvel. Um, uh, I'm a nerdist next year. Next year, see, it's not soon enough. That's my point. Um, and you know, and, and then we had Black Panther come out this year, and that dwarfed the sales of almost every other Marvel. I don't know if it beat out Infinity War yet, but um, it's just interesting because the sales drive that diversity. It's like, what do we want to buy? What is the character that we want to look at? And I'd say in other countries, it's much more diverse because there's a bigger pool of people reading these things. This is a really hard question to answer without getting myself in trouble, it feels like. Go for it. There's definitely a lot more, uh, I think, a lot more diversity in comics today than there was when I started. Um, it's going to sound crazy if I've been in comics for about 23 years now. Um, Especially from when I started off as an intern, paid internship back then, so that was exciting. But um, yeah, there are a lot of female-led uh, titles. Like I really enjoyed, like there's Captain Marvel. Yeah, you know, Captain Marvel when I started reading was still just a secondary character. But, yeah, it now yeah has a huge following in the series. There's Ms. Marvel. You have a lot of um, other publishers. I think that's a big thing that's helped diversity from the fact that we're not just focused on the big two, like Marvel and DC comics, even though they diversify. Um, we have 
just from the sheer fact that the the staff and the people producing comics are changing and becoming more diversified. We're seeing that in the material being produced. Um, there's still, yeah, I still think we're producing a lot of books for middle-aged white guys because that's what sells. Um, but at least that's for, like, say, uh, it's the known quantity. Of exactly, it's the known quantity. Um, I've gotten into lots of arguments with some, you know, with my colleagues about it, but you know, ultimately, at least American comics are still uh, capitalist. You know, we have to produce what sells, otherwise, if we're losing money, we go out of business. And unfortunately, there is that. It's something we struggle with, and that we're trying to figure out how to bridge that gap of trying to reach new readership. But at the same time, we still need to cater to what's bills and keeping our lights on. So, I mean, I'm probably talking to a lot of different topics, you know, that answer, you know, but, yeah. So, diversity is increasing, but it's a struggle of trying to make, you know, keep the lights on versus, you know, being able to diversify with some, you know, reach new audiences and that struggle there. I'm going to change, I'm going to change up the tone. We have a fun question. And because I can see we have at least a couple of kids in the audience, I want you to listen to this question because I want you to answer this question too. If you could be any comic book character, who would it be? I'll go first because I forgot to answer the last question. Um, I would be in Britain. Like Patrick was talking to about the international dimension of comics, and because I come from a foreign country, this has been on my mind a lot actually since I came to Comic Con. I never really thought about it before. The comics I grew up with were not the comics that Americans grew up with. I had a lot of friends <coughs> comics around me, Asterix and Obelisk, and um, a lot of British comics as I was growing up were oriented not around superheroes but around sports. Uh, around soccer, fishing, wrestling, motor racing, running, you know, always was one called Hot Shot Page. And he was this, this big Scottish guy from the Highlands of Scotland, and he, and he was a soccer player who had the hardest shot in the world. Like, he could kick that ball so hard it would, like, break the neck. Um, but, the, but the comic strip, he, he, he had this other player that he used to play with, he was called Mighty Max, and he was a a little bit kind of odd looking, and he wore glasses, but he was an absolutely brilliant soccer player. And I always wanted to be Mighty Mouse, because I wear glasses, and I love soccer, and I, would look, I always wanted to like, pass the ball to Hot Shot Hayes, so it great. <laughs>
was always about dinosaurs, and I was just thinking about how cool it would be. I, it, I don't know if anybody remembers the books Dinotopia, the, the books. Um, I just want to be in the books. They just seem awesome, and there's no tragic, painful thing. The dinosaurs live, you know. <laughs> been kind of thinking about this ever since I saw the list of questions, and I still haven't narrowed it down uh, to uh, less than three. Uh, but I guess probably my, my biggest one would probably be Batman. Because uh, uh, you should always be yourself, unless you can be Batman. Um, but the, 
was history. It, it was marking a, a point in history. Uh, and I got to meet somebody who had a, a huge dynamic influence on, on the industry. Um, as Comic-Con got bigger, um, the ability to reach out and touch these people uh, got smaller. Um, and uh, the emphasis, uh, kind of like you alluded to earlier, about uh, looking where the money was, uh, you know, Hollywood, games and things like that, which generate a lot more revenue, um, have taken more uh, of the floor space, uh, even as the convention center has grown. Uh, it has also um, brought in a group of folks who are only peripherally interested in comics. They might be interested in the intellectual property, uh, the characters, but they're not really interested in reading the comics. Uh, and so that part is, is kind of maybe actually push some people away. Uh, but uh, I'm really, really confident that with um, the Comic-Con Museum opening uh, and being open all year round, not just four or five days a year, uh, where people can come in and actually see uh, the history of comics again, and more than likely, uh, I've heard rumors that there might be some classes uh, there about comics, and I'm sure that there will be tons of creators who would love to come in, uh, make appearances there as well. I'm hoping that we'll see the resurgence uh, and emphasis on comics themselves again. Um, so I, I'm really excited to see the museum. Speak to the influence of Comic-Con on Comic-Con. on comics. Well, I know the very first time I went to Comic-Con, I was 14 years old, and it was amazing and blew my mind because it showed me that I wasn't alone. Being, you know, a nerd, especially a nerdy girl in like 92, um, and a you know, fairly religious, conservative, you know, suburb, it was just like, oh, I'm not alone. And then I got the internet the following year, and yeah, found others. Um, but yeah, it's, I appreciate Comic-Con for the fact that um, people I know for a fact who threw the phones at me, you know, in 92 are now super into comics because of Comic-Con. So it's kind of like, okay, you realize I'm cool out 20 years later. Um, <laughs> so that, you know, Comic-Con's made like comics and definitely like a lot of my nerdy passions cool and, you know, and embraced definitely by the wider culture. That's what I'd say Comic-Con's had a key in. When I was uh, growing up, uh, the only way I knew anything about the comic book scene was this magazine called Wizard Comics uh, in the 90s, and it was like the people magazine of the comic book industry. Um, but it was the only one that made it up to New Hampshire, and it was how I knew what the creators looked like and that there were people who made these things. And um, you know, my first comic convention was I moved from the coast of Maine 10 years ago out to San Diego to start teaching, and I went to and that was my first ever comic convention in 2009. And I probably should have started with a smaller convention. Um, but, uh, you know, one of the things that I just want to echo that, that Lorelai said uh, is this idea that uh, it showed me at the very least, and I think for everybody who interacts with it, that, that whatever you like is accepted. There's, there's somebody there that cares and is as big a fan as you are about that thing. And I think the 
grown, you know, I, I've seen that. You know, you look at the cosplay people, and you, I, which I'm not a cosplay person, but I don't, I don't have any judgment for cosplay people. I actually am glad that they're invited to the party. You know, um, and, and actually, they're probably the life of the party. My Minecraft's probably not as fun at the party as you know the guys drawing in the back corner, <laughs> very pale and haven't gone outside for a while. Um, uh, but yeah, you know, uh, I think I think that that's the coolest thing. Is and the more it's grown, is the more, and, and that's what I care about. The more that people feel accepted uh, and, and feel like they can come and be a part of something and be accepted for the niche little thing that they care about. And, and I think that as Comic-Con's grown, that it's become this kind of oasis for, for letting the world know that what you're into is cool. Yeah, thanks, Patrick. I just want to do a little quick quick poll of the people in the audience. Um, raise your hand if you've ever been to Comic-Con, actually, inside the event. Okay, raise your hand if you haven't. Raise your hand if you haven't. It's about 50-50 in the audience. Um, for those of you that haven't been, first of all, Robert, you, I think you've captured one of the big reasons we want to do this museum in general. The success of the event has created a problem, which is for those of you that have never been, it's really hard to get there. Um, and even if we wanted you, you know, even if you wanted to go, it's not always easy to go. So having 365 days a year where you may not have it all, but at least we can have these kind of conversations and show the art and, and show the techniques and show all of the cultural aspects that, that go along with comics. But we now are gonna have a venue to do that. Um, but for those that have never been to the event, I, I haven't been 45 times, I've been twice. Um, and so I'm still in that sort of, that person just looking at with absolute amazement at the size and scale of it all. Um, the thing, the thing that I say to people that haven't been is, is the image of it in your mind, I think, is strongly prejudiced by what you see on the TV and the newspapers and things like that, which is you see this giant event, you see people dressed up in costume, you see Hollywood stars. I think the thing you maybe don't see that's so important about Comic-Con is this massive diversity of programming. Um, actually, Ed Ibrahim, who puts all that programming together, is in the room tonight. Um, Eddie, how many separate panels and programs do you, do you arrange each, each year? Uh, well, when I first started, uh, we had 387 panels. And that doesn't include screenings or anime or any of that. That adds on many, many more hours. Uh, this last year, uh, we had a total of 857 panels. So, this is Can I interject for a moment here? Sorry? I just wanted to emphasize what you're saying here. I was actually on a panel uh, during Comic-Con with a 90-year-old Holocaust survivor uh, who spoke to us on art during the Holocaust. Um, so if you, uh, and it was a standing room only, uh, a few hundred people and, and more people that wanted to get in. Um, if you ever thought that there was no diversity at Comic-Con, <laughs> I think that is an exclamation point on it. So great job. So part of what you don't see is that over just four days, there are 857 of these. Yeah. And this would be a teeny tiny one. Yeah. You know, the, the, um, there are some of the panels that just literally thousands of people in. And buried in all that programming is an absolute amazing diversity of 
programming. One of the things that's really hit me in the face as I got to know Comic Con and its culture is that this organization was doing diversity, access, inclusive type programming before anyone else even thought of it as a thing. Um, it is just in the being of Comic Con to say, whoever you are, whatever you are, you are welcome here. As long, you just gotta bring one thing, your passion. And, and, and so Comic Con as an event has adjusted itself to be, an, I think, an extremely diverse and inclusive organization. Um, Um, no question, we, we, want, we definitely want those values to continue through the museum. All right, uh, pontificating over. It's time for you guys to ask some questions. Uh, right, we've got a couple at the back. Do you want to do you want to share, Michael? We'll see if we can hear you. Yeah, go for it. Very loud voice. You guys all hear the question, okay? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You, you, you guys all heard the question, okay? Uh, Patrick, yes, yeah. like you want? You want I'm to just very excited because I care. I care so much about the medium of comic books. I mean, I created a website called MakingComics.com. I care about the medium of comics. Um, I think that there's often a mistake, and this has to do with the commercialization of American comics versus what the medium is. Comic books are a series of panels that tell stories with pictures and word balloons. Um, it is, uh, you know, it's time and space moving between two panels. That's all comic books are, pictures and words. Um, superhero comics, yeah, probably perpetuated a lot of violence. Um, but I've seen it, the, the height of the, when I see the best of superhero comics, it's using violence to talk about the nature of violence and how that's, that's a hard thing to deal with. And at the lowest point of it, it's gratuitous. Yeah, I'm not gonna deny that, but I don't, I, I think that that's a small subset. I just traveled through Europe and went to different comic book stores a couple of years ago throughout there. I've, I've seen lots of comics from overseas. They're about love and romance and Archie and, uh, you know, and Mickey Mouse and, um, you know, Bone is a great comic that might have a couple moments of slapsticky violence, but no more than we'd seen the Three Stooges. Um, well, maybe that's a bad example. <laughs> but yeah, no, there's a very big difference. And I, and I really think that, that the root of why I get so passionate about that question is because I work with kids and I want them to know that comic books are a communication tool. They're, they're a way for them to tell a story to somebody else in a way that's gonna be instantly understood faster than uh, spending years re uh, learning to write. Because writing can be really difficult, but drawing a smiley face to convey an emotion can be very powerful at, at, at very specific moments. Um, and, and that's what comic books are, it is conveying emotions and stories. Yeah. Well, I think, uh, I think also comics get a little ghettoized as superhero comics. I mean, comics are also what you read in your 
knee-jerk to go, comic book solo, that's just Superman guys in tights. There are so many comics and comics every day, um, back to words and pictures. Uh, it's a great communication device. Um, one of the biggest selling comics ever is actually, I just forgot the name of the silk company, but it's about, it's a small comic promoting uh, sanitation in third world countries because they can just draw pictures and children learn. Oh, I wash my hands because there's germs in the water. You don't need to even translate into English, French, German, or Hindi, or any other language. And it's this incredible communication tool. But like I said, yeah. And me personally, um, when people major to comics or just guys in tights and violence, we're surrounded by visual storytelling everywhere. And it's a huge benefit to communication between everybody. And so it's kind of, it's frustrating when, you know, people kind of dismiss the whole medium based upon just a handful of, uh, you know, a very stereotypical comics. While the microphone goes back down to Robert, um, did you see, as you asked the question, that their body language changed? They decided, we're ready, we want to answer this one. And then just to sort of amplify what, what I think Patrick was saying, I, I think what you were making an argument for was that to think of comics as a medium of communication, just like photography is a medium of communication, or film, or, or writing. Mm -hmm. Comics is a distinct form unto itself that combines words and pictures in, in a method of storytelling. It's a medium of communication. Now that, that medium can be used to communicate any conceivable story. I, uh, and yes, it does get used to communicate stories of violence, and the, the superhero genre in particular is maybe, you know, is in America very popular, and there's, there's a lot of it out there, but there is so much amazing stuff that's not violent. Um, you know, I, I'm reading one right now, because um, I'm British, we, our version of the Pulitzer Prize is called the, the Booker Prize, and they, for the first time ever, a graphic novel, a large comic book, was nominated and shortlisted for the Booker Prize, so I read that, and this thing is amazing. And it's nothing to do with violence. It's about, I mean, it's, it, it's about the feeling of being a single male alienated in the early 21st century, um, you know, and how technology plays into our lives, and it's a complex and deep weaving of story, and it deserves literary criticism uh, or, or literary accolades that it's getting, there's nothing to do with violence. It's, it's about using an amazing art form to tell to tell the story in an amazing way. I totally understand why you feel the way you do about comics. Uh, it's something that I've, I've striven to address uh, in the 26 years that I've owned Kamikaze uh, and being able to um, bring about the many different types of genre that are uh, reflected in comics. Uh, comic books, we have a lot of folks who do believe that comic books are a genre, uh, and that it dictates that it be about guys in tights punching each other. Uh, and it's just not the case. Um, as Adam said, anything uh, that's ever been written about in a novel, anything that's ever been filmed, uh, there is a comic book that reflects the same values and the same types of storytelling. Uh, it's just a matter, unfortunately, of the art form uh, being a little too niche or uh, 
many of us have actually experienced those other types of comics. And I think it, it, it is, is becoming more, uh, more accessible, especially with books being available on the internet uh, and people doing uh, digital comics uh, that we can reach out and see the differences there. But um, yeah, if, you're, if, if you don't feel that comics ever spoke to you or that you were ever, would ever be interested in a comic, it's only because you haven't had a chance to experience a comic that would speak to you. Uh, if you are here in San Diego, come see me at Kamikaze. <laughs> tell, me, tell me the types of things that interest you. If you like to read, tell me what you like to read. Uh, and, and we'll find something that, that will fit. And that is the role of the good comic books that we Right. Yeah, but he's actually probably done more comics right. than the last. 
he is yeah now to comic book readers. He's very well known as uh, one of the one of the top Wonder Woman uh, writers and has done quite a few other books. And I had a gentleman coming in today asking me to suggest some novels to him, and, and he settled on a Greg Rucka novel. And I mentioned to him that uh, if he enjoyed it, we had a couple of other really neat books by him that were graphic novels. Was, I don't read comics. I, I don't. I would. I, I don't appreciate comics. Same writer, similar stories. You know, it, I'm not forcing you to buy it, but I would suggest you know if you like it, you might own it. So there's there's there is, you know, things have been drilled into us over the years. Comic books are big people who can't read real books. If you read too many comics, your brain will rot. Oh, uh, so so many different things, and it's, that's fine. You know, there's, there's uh, enough. Uh, work out there that speaks. I mean, Time Magazine, for whatever it's worth, voted Watchmen one of the best, 100, 100 best novels uh, of the last 100 years. Uh, not qualified as being a graphic novel, just included in a list of novels. Um, I think there's a lot more that probably deserve to place higher, um, but we got one. <laughs> so hopefully we'll, we'll, uh, we'll see some more. I don't even think it's the best novel that he's written, but be that as it may. Right. Uh, I, did, I just want to add something. I had a bad comment before. Um, but anyway, the thing that I wanted to say that, that I think that this big change, because I, I was just thinking about it from where you guys are talking about it. And, and the big thing that I get is on makingcomics.com, the number one subgroup of people who approach us to understand what we do is teachers. We get teachers and librarians contacting us constantly asking, how do I teach comic books in my classroom? Which is unheard of, uh, you know, 20 years ago. 20 years ago, I, I was told in third grade that I wasn't allowed to read books that had pictures in them anymore, and that that was for kids. And I was like, well, I don't want to grow up. That sounds horrible. Um, but, uh, you know, like, what I think is amazing is there's not as much of this protective tissue in the K-12 environment anymore saying words and pictures don't belong together. It's all of a sudden becoming how do we do project-based learning and how do we bring comic books into the classroom? And I think that these awards and, and these big things have aided a lot in helping the public perception of comics become acceptable. I want to make a small advertisement for um, graphic novel book clubs. Um, in the last three or four years, Comic Con has opened seven book clubs here in San Diego. Six of them are associated with branch libraries. Um, the other one is uh, associated with our museum here. Uh, it's a group of people that get together every month, choose a book, and then come back the next month to discuss the content of the book, the art. And, uh, I've been participating in hours here at Balboa Park. It's a tremendous format. So if anyone's interested in um, getting involved in graphic novel book clubs, come and see me after the, uh, after the event, and I'll point you in the right direction. Any more questions? Yes, sir. I'm curious as to the historical origins with respect to the Captain America beginning of the program. Uh, for the 23 years following the Great War, America was large enough in general, vastly isolationist the before World War One, And Roosevelt and your prime minister at the time were trying to figure ways to get America to maybe step up the military. Um, 
not a not Captain America per se, no, but um, any of you who served uh, probably had seen quite a few comic books come through, uh, some which were created specifically for uh, the military and uh, not available uh, to the general public. But uh, I, I don't think that uh, either Superman or, or Captain America really had uh, any yeah. import. Yeah, once, uh, once the war started, um, Superman definitely also was uh, a lot of covers and was always advertisements for war bonds. So comics were definitely used as a tool to support the war, but I don't know if it was used uh, to help uh, win any uh, political uh, sway to join the war. Yeah, I was going to say, I, I, Captain America, I believe, wasn't published for very long. Specific. He was one of like 30 like characters that was created at the time. There was a lot of like uh, nationalistic uh, superhero characters that were created for propaganda for the war. Um, but in you know post-war and into the 50s, uh, there was a whole thing. Um, there's a book called The Ten Cent Plague, and, it, and it's, it chronicles this whole history of comic book censorship that happened. Because what happened was as comic books got popular and ubiquitous in different cities and circulation, um, you know, underground comics started coming around and, and people started kind of freaking out about the, the effect of comics on kids. And so there was a very public trial and uh, the Comics Code Authority was created, which comic books self-censored themselves. But at that time was when you saw the beginning of dips in publication numbers, um, I believe early superhero books or even comic books in general, whether they be westerns or romance comics, published in like the millions uh, uh, back in the 40s and early 50s and then you know towards the end of the 50s uh, due to censorship and a lot of public favor the medium just plummeted in popularity um, and Stan Lee creating the Marvel comic book characters was one of the reasons why they got popular again um, in, in the public case. but so you know they weren't as ever present in our culture the way they are now or the way they were in World War II All right, I think we have time for maybe two more questions. So, right, one around there. Of, uh, the things we were persecuted about reading, and um, yeah, 
in the sense that I think the the English um, that there some people have tried to describe it more accurately as sequential art, um, but nobody wants to nobody wants to say sequential art. They want to say, and in a funny kind of way, there's a couple of people in the room participating in a big debate we had recently about what to call uh, what we eventually decided to call a museum. And because we were, it's not the perfect word, like comics isn't the perfect word to describe what, we, what, we, what you're describing, but, but there's, there's no better word, if that makes sense. And, and it's the same with museum, because some of the voices in our debate um, were sort of saying, well, but a museum's kind of like an old, backward-looking, dusty kind of a place, you know? And to some degree, that's true. Um, but that's not what we're going to do. But it also says it's a place that is open to the public, that has an educational mission, that is non-profit, that you are welcome to come and visit. And there's no, you couldn't, there are no other words that actually say that other than museum. So that's one of the reasons we ended up Right, last question. You go, you were first, hold on. Um, I'm just wondering if there's a moment you could share that expresses a sign that comics were there for you on a personal level or inspired you in any way. That is a great closing question. I'm gonna repeat it just in quick in case anybody um, could could each of you speak to a time when comics were there for you? And I'm going last because I'm the moderator, and I really want to think about that. <laughs> Unfortunately, it's probably not what you were hoping to hear, but um, not really at a point that they were there for me, but the thing that, that I maybe embraced the most was uh, one of my favorite characters is Spider-Man, and there was uh, a point in time where they actually allowed Spider-Man to get married. Uh, just gotten married myself, and so it was really neat to be able to see a character that I'd grown up with uh, and, and felt like kind of a kinship to uh, actually having a life that somewhat resembled my own life. And, uh, you know, it's made it more fun and interesting uh, to read. So that's about as close as I, get. I would come to that. I think mine has to be Calvin and Hobbes, and it has to be was my mother's an art teacher, she teaches K through six, and she has for 37 years now, she's retiring next year. Um, and she wouldn't let me watch The Simpsons um, because Bart was mouthy. She would let me read Calvin and Hobbes, and I, I think just seeing this kid was weird, and every time he was at school, he didn't quite fit in, he was distracted, he was imagining things, and, and how that was the coolest thing all the rest of us made me feel very accepted, um, even though I didn't know how to express that quite as well as uh, Bill Watterson was doing. Yeah. Well, it's funny about this, Simpsons, we weren't allowed to watch the Simpsons unless we agreed to behave like a Flanders children. <laughs> <laughs> Um, 